Last week we looked at uh, an incident that took place when the people of Israel crossed the Jordan and uh, we spent some time together talking about crossing that river and each of us has a river to cross. After the people of Israel with Joshua crossed the river and uh, I don't know if I have that slide. Yeah, I do. Uh, I think you guys like that slide. Uh, all right. They came to that point in the journey where they were on the east side of the Jordan River and it was time for them to cross. And remember, we were talking about the Jordan River and it flows north to south from the Sea of Galilee, from Mount Hermon, from Lebanon, all the water, the rain that comes down, and then it flows down to the Dead Sea. And that's a whole sermon, the Dead Sea. What happens? Why is it called the Dead Sea? Why is the water flowing down? And uh, they were at the city of Shittim, and they were going to be crossing over. They set up camp there, and it was right across Jericho. And then, here it comes. You ready? All right, here it comes. They dismantled camp, and they stepped into the water. And as the priests put their foot into the water, the water stopped at Adam. It stopped way up, 21 kilometers or 21 miles away, 20 miles away, something like that. And uh, we talked about why that's important. And what happens when the people of God step into the river? I never got into this last week, but what happens when the people of God step into the river is that the river's flow stops from going into the Dead Sea. That's a good thing. That's a good positive thing. The water continues outside and it does what it's supposed to in the land that's outside. That's a whole different other sermon. That's not what we're here to discuss today. We're here to discuss what happens next. Not next immediately, but as they continued. They now went into this region and they had a first fight. The first war they had was at Jericho where they didn't know what they were going to do. It was a walled city, but they obeyed God. They listened to the advice, not the advice, but the plan, the strategy God gave Joshua. And it was a crazy strategy. Walk around the city for seven days. And on the seventh day, walk seven times and then shout and the walls would come down. Who would believe that? You know, you just saw miracles of water parting, stopping miles ahead. And now you're coming into the city and they look like real enemies that can destroy you. And now you're faced with a challenge. And this is exactly what happens in our lives. We face different challenges that are bigger than us. If you had challenges that were not big, they would not be challenges. We wouldn't even call them challenges. If the circumstances of our life were always easy, we would never get stronger. You know, when, when you rest and do nothing for a long time, your muscles begin to melt, the atrophy. And it's like that in the spirit. When you rest for too long, you need rest, but when you rest for too long and you are not faced with challenges, your spiritual muscles begin to weaken and your faith begins to weaken. So the Lord allows, you know, as a matter of fact, for the, for the Jewish mind, the rabbis, don't think of Satan the way we Christians do. They think of him in a different way. They think of him as the one who is assigned 
to be the instigator. That's a totally different perspective than how we see him as the tempter. But they look at him as the one who instigates, who causes you to step into a situation that will be challenging. So they've seen it from a different perspective. It's a positive perspective because God allowed him to be there. So they're looking at it from that perspective. I'm not suggesting that we do because we know he's a roaring lion. He tramples around like a roaring lion, but he doesn't have, not, doesn't have a bite. He only has a bite when we allow him. So they continued on and they went from Jer- Jericho to Ai and they started to fight in that region. But now we come to a situation where... In the end of the life of Joshua, we're in the last chapter of the book of Joshua. Joshua did everything that God commanded him to do. He was a good man. He followed Moses as a leader of the people of Israel after they came out of Egypt. And he took them into the promised land and he led them well. So here we are. They gathered, Joshua then gathered all the tribes of Israel to Sechem. Shechem, and he summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Just to give you perspective, they crossed here. This is modern day Israel now. This is not the map that Joshua knew. So this border here, okay, This area here is what's called the West Bank. The West Bank today is under the leadership or the government of the Palestinian Authority. So this area here is Arab. The other area, this is not the whole map, the other area, the map of Israel is much bigger than this, not much bigger, but it's bigger than this. But the the area that we're interested in, Jericho, where Jesus was born in Bethlehem, these are all part of the West Bank. So now we have come to the city of Shechem or Shechem. The city of Shechem today is known as the city that was renamed by the Romans at the time of the Roman Empire. In other words, in the early first century, they renamed that city from Shechem to Neapolis. Does that sound familiar, Neapolis? Do you know any other cities that sound like that? Minneapolis, Annapolis. The word polis in Rome in, in Greek means city. Okay? There's another city called Constantinopolis. Does that name ring a bell? It used to be called that. Today it's called Istanbul. Very good. You know your geography. Okay. So this was called Flavius Neapolis. The new city of Flavius. But when the Arabs started to live there, Neapolis became Nablus. Because there's no P in Arabic. Right? So Peter is Beter. Right? Seven is seven or seven. But anyway, it's the pronunciation in the Arabic that has now changed its name from what historically it was Shechem or Shechem to Flavius Neapolis to now Nablus. So this city of Nablus, when we look at it, we are geographically there. Okay, 
we have moved out of Toronto, we have moved away from Jericho, we have come now, and all Israel, all the Israelites, Joshua bring them, brings them to that spot, and that spot is interesting, because in that spot, there's two mountains. One mountain to the right, one mountain to the left. One mountain is called Mount Ebal, the other one is called Mount Gerizim. We have pictures for that, don't we? Yeah, of course we do. So this is the area of Naples or Nablos, 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 yeah, Neapolis, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Now we read about this in Joshua 8. I know we're in Joshua 24, but the history is important. We read about this in Joshua 8, and Joshua actually, in Joshua 8, built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, in what book? Well, in the book of Exodus, he had given the order of what the altar looks like, but he gave the last words of Moses, were given in the book of Deuteronomy, chapters 28, 29, and 30. And those chapters are known as the chapters of the curses and the blessings. Where he tells if you do these things, you will be blessed. If you don't do these things, curses will follow you. You with me so far? He tells, Moses is telling the people of Israel, before Joshua takes them into the promised land, they were still in the wilderness. He tells them, God is going to be with you. He has given you this covenant. He's going to walk with you in this covenant. And he's going to bless you when you do these things. Just as Moses had commanded as it is written in the book of the laws, Moses, an altar of unhewn stone on which no iron tool has been used. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed offerings of well-being. Then in the presence of all the Israelites, Joshua wrote on the stone a copy of the law of Moses. He wrote those blessings and those curses on that stone. All Israel, alien as well as native, in other words, Jewish, and Gentile that were there, native born, with all their elders and officers and judges, stood on the opposite side of the ark in front of the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant, half of them on Mount Gerizim, half of them in front of Mount Ebal. So they were standing in front of the two mountains. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded earlier they sh that they should bless the people of Israel. Afterwards, he read all the words of the law, blessings and curses, according to all that was written in the book of law, the law. There was not a word of that, of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before the people, before the assembly of Israel, and the women, and the little ones, and the aliens who resided among them. So here they are. Joshua and the priest are standing in the middle. All the people of Israel are one side and the other. And he's reading the commandments to them. He's reading to them the conditions of being blessed and the conditions of getting curses. That's pretty intense. Now, why did he do that? Well, <clears throat> what do we know about the city? Why is that important? He didn't just come up with this idea. There's history there. There's history. In land. There is history 
in location. You know, when you ask a business consultant, what's the best advice you can give me? I'm thinking of starting a new business. And the first thing they tell you, well, the most important things are location, location, location. So here we are at a location. And this location is now called Nablus, but it used to be called Shechem. And what happened there before? Well, let's go back to the origins of this family. This family, Joshua and the rest of them, are a family. Ara said, extend your hands. We're not going to be praying me alone, but we're going to be praying as a family. It was the family of God at that time that God came to one man, Abraham, and he spoke to him these words. He said, Abraham, Abram, as a matter of fact, that time his name was just Abram, not Abraham. Uh, Ham, Abraham means the father of many nations. Abram means father of nation. Go to your country and your kindred in your father's house. Go from your country and your kindred in your father's house to the land that I will show you. This is called the Abrahamic covenant. This is a historic moment. It is a moment that changed the course of history. It is a moment that up until today, the impact of those words exist on the planet. I will make you a great nation. I'll make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. God's intent in calling Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make you something. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. Abraham was married. He was old. His wife was barren. They had no kids. He's getting on in years. His wife is already past the age of giving birth, and he's like getting close to that. So it's getting pretty desperate. Lord, what are you talking about? I'm not like I'm a single, double income, no kids family. We have a good set of you know servants and cattle and everything. We're rich, but we have no kids. What nation are you going to make out of me? But I will bless you and make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Okay, this is huge. This is historic. I will bless you so that you would be my vehicle through which I will bless all the other families of the earth. How you live will determine how they get blessed. If you live in a way that family X curses you, I will have to curse them. So live in a way that family X won't curse you so that I can bless them because I want to bless all the families of the earth through you. Do you see the, the, the game plan here? Abraham is being told, live in such a way that everyone around blesses you because, because they bless you, I will bless them. My plan is to bless the whole world. My plan is no different than my plan with Adam. When I told Adam to go fill the earth, multiply, and 
take over the whole planet and govern it. I want you to do the same. I'm now dealing with you because all around you, these other families are all idol worshipping. You are unique because you are not worshipping idols. So I've chosen you to make you something great so that through you, all these others that are now corrupt will come to the place of being blessed. Because when they're blessed, the power of Satan's curses is cut off of them so that they can come with open hearts and open minds and see who I am because of what I've done with you so that they can... God didn't say all of that, but that's what he's really saying. And he's saying the same thing to the church. Live in such a way because we are now, the church, are the adopted children of Abraham by faith. He is our father. So this is our family tradition. So if Abraham is to be our father and we are to be his children, the church ought to live in a way that it never gets cursed by anybody so that God can bless everybody through the churches being the great nation. Does that make any sense? Is that challenging? Sure is. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old. I told you this is about location. Well, we're coming. And when he departed from Haran, Abraham took his wife Sarai and his brother's son Lot and all the possessions that they had gathered and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran and they set forth to the land of Canaan, the land that we were looking at. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem. To the oak of Moreh, at that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord at Shechem, by the oak, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring, he had no offspring, to your offspring I will give this land. So Abraham built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Where? Shechem, location. Something happened there. God showed up there. God made a promise there. Abraham took hold of that promise. 400 years pass. They end up in Egypt. Slaves. They come out of Egypt. Moses brings them out. Joshua takes them now in. And they're back to the same spot. And Joshua sets an altar on Mount Ebal, and the people are gathered there, where? Shechem. From there he moved on to the hill country of the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, and with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, he came back down. And then he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord, and Abraham, and Abraham journeyed on by stages towards the Negev. So we see what happened here at uh, Shechem. This isn't just uh, a story. You know, they, they, they had that moment where at Shechem, all of a sudden, God is interacting with people. So let's go back to Joshua chapter 3. He gathered all the people, and they presented themselves before the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago to your ancestors, this is what he says. 
Terah and his son Abram, Abraham and Nahor lived beyond the Euphrates and served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through to the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. He had no offspring yet when he met at Shechem where he's now retelling the story. I gave him Isaac. He had no kids, but I gave him Isaac. You are the one who shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant when you come to the... Oops. Sorry, that was the wrong verse. But, uh, but we're done here at three. Okay, I gave him Isaac. So I had an extra slide here. So now they're standing there. They're standing at Shechem, mountains on both sides. He's telling them, this is what happened. So he continues on down the chapter. Now, therefore, revere the Lord. He's talking to all the people on both sides of the mountains. Joshua is saying, Now, therefore, revere the Lord and serve him with sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods of your an that your ancestors served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. It seems that they still had some of those idols with them from Egypt. They had carried them for 40 years in the desert. And they had handed them from one generation to the other. The generation that came out of Egypt all died. But somehow they still kept them. That's shocking. Now if you are unwilling to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your ancestors, that your, whether the gods your ancestors served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites, the locals, in whose lands you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua, uh, then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Why are you laughing? Far be it from us. Who are these people saying that? These are the same people that crossed the waters when the priests set their foot into the water and the water stopped at Adam they were the same people that saw that miracle it's not a generation later it's the same people many more kids but it's the same people so they've seen the miracle of God they've experienced and saw his power firsthand for we will serve him for sure for it is the Lord our God who brought us and our ancestors up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight. He protected us along the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed, Jericho, Ai, Bethel, all those other cities until we got to where we are. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we will also serve the Lord, for he is our God. Now, every time you read the word the Lord, think Yahweh. It's not just the Lord, but the translators don't put Yahweh out of reverence for the name, but it's Yahweh. It's the name God expressed about himself. It's the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. It is the God who has no beginning, no end. It is that four-letter name of God that we can't even pronounce. But it's the sound of our breathing.
You can hear it every time someone breathes. I'm not moving my mouth, I'm not moving my tongue, but you can hear it when someone breathes. You have to use your imagination maybe a little bit, but once you hear it once, you will never unhear it. It's the first breath that a child takes and breathes the name of God. It's the last breath that a person takes on their deathbed and breathes the name of God. That's amazing the way he did that. Therefore, we will also serve Yahweh, for he is our God. One of the Psalms says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, Yahweh. But Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Okay. Anybody have trouble with this? Is this the God you know? So when we read, we have to read with our heads, our, our brains active. There are things that are descriptive, in this case, descriptive, what Joshua spoke, the Bible describes, and there are things that are prescriptive. What the Bible writes or the authors write, we have to do. So Joshua here is doing something similar to what Adam did, likely with Eve. Because when the enemy, when the serpent came to Eve, he says, have some of the tree, the fruit. And she says, no, we can't even touch it. We suspect that Adam told Eve, don't eat from this, don't even touch it. You know how sometimes we do that? I have some things on my desk, I don't want anybody to mess with it. And I tell, hey, listen, I have some stuff on my desk, don't even touch it. We're going a little bit overboard. I think he's trying to go overboard here because he's trying to get them to the point of commitment. So all the commentators that have studied, all of them say that Joshua is trying to make a strong case to get them to the point of jealousy of wanting to obey the Lord. I think he went overboard in misrepresenting God in this area. We might have done the same. You and I may have done the same. But listen to what he says. He will not forgive your sins or transgressions. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. The history doesn't show that. The history shows that God is relentless in wanting to bring them back. Joshua, you missed it on this one. You've been so faithful, but on this one, you really shot hard about who God is. But God forgives him. Because we read more in the story. And the, the people said to Joshua, No, 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 we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. And he said, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve and him we will obey. And Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made statutes and ordinances for them where location there's more to this location in the history of Israel when the children of Abraham had grown and now Isaac had a son Jacob and Jacob had multiple wives if you remember he he fell in love with this girl he wanted to marry her he labored for seven years and then he ended up marrying her sister the older sister 
the, the father-in-law tricked him. Anyway, he has multiple wives and he has multiple children. And now the 11th child is a child called Joseph. And Joseph was the one in Egypt. Do you remember? When there was a famine, he was a second in command after Pharaoh. And all the other children of, Abraham, of, of uh, Jacob ended up coming to buy food. But he recognized them and he brought them in and saved them. Now Jacob had asked that when they leave, Egypt they would take his bones with them and bury them in the promised land Joseph heard that and he said to them the same thing as a matter of fact in the book of Hebrews we read this very interesting thing in the book of Hebrews we can read so much about the stories of the different people of faith in Hebrews 11 there's a whole chapter of the, the, the hall of faith right all these heroes but notice it doesn't talk about his endurance when he was in the jail it doesn't talk about his faithfulness when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife, but it talks about this. This is the faith that was so superb that it was highlighted in this chapter. It says, by faith, Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the Exodus. He said, when you guys leave Egypt, he knew something was coming. He knew that they weren't destined to stay in Egypt and make Egypt their home. He knew that God had promised a land to Abraham that they are going to have to get to. Location is important so when he was planning his last moments he tells them and gave instructions about his burial now the people of Egypt were so honored honoring of Joseph that they actually made a metal casket for him and they buried him in the Nile because they felt that his bones would bless the Nile and they would have fruitfulness along with the waters of the Nile all in Egypt but when they came to leave Moses knew where the casket was and they picked it up and they took it with them. And this is what Hebrews is quoting in Genesis 50. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to you and bring you out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham. He knew. He knew location. He knew the promised land. He knew the covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Joseph made them swear, saying, when God comes to you, you shall carry up my bones from here and Joseph died, being one of the uh, 110 years old, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. And that's the last verse of the book of Genesis. It ends, it starts with God created the heavens and the earth, put man in a garden, and it ends with a coffin in Egypt. The state of humanity. But when he took, when they took the bones, they carried those bones all along the journey, all over the wilderness for 40 years, they wandered and they had those bones, Jacob's bones and Joseph's bones. And they come to the place where they cross now into the promised land. They buried Jacob's bones in one spot, but Joseph's bones, they waited until they got to a special place. It was a place that Jacob or Israel had gifted to Joseph. And it was actually the land that was given to Joseph's descendants, Manasseh and Ephraim. They inherited that territory. Where do you think that would be? Right there in Shechem. So they buried Joseph in a tomb in Shechem because he was faithful and he wanted to have a portion that was his portion he was buried in his portion. 
What does that mean to us? God has a plan. He has promises for each one of us. We may not be able to see the fulfillment of those plans in our imagination because the situations that we are facing are so difficult. But enduring, remaining faithful, trusting Him, not wavering, not doing the things that they said that they wouldn't do, not walking in the curses, but remaining faithful. So he commands them in all of this. He, he, they know this. They know Shechem. They know Abraham's story. They know what happened with, within Shechem. As a matter of fact, Jacob's daughter, Dina, was raped by a man whose name was Shechem from the city of Shechem. And her two brothers decided that, and, and they came and they wanted to honor Jacob by saying, we want to marry your daughter. Whatever happened, we want to make it right. So the father of Shechem came and spoke to uh, Jacob and he said to him, we want to take your daughter as a wife for my son. So God gave them a strategy. And the strategy was, if you want to be part of us, you have to be part of the covenant. So all your men have to be circumcised. So all the men of Shechem got circumcised. And when they were circumcised, they were physically very weak because of the injury that they endured, the surgery. So in that moment, two of Jacob's sons, Joseph's brothers, took the opportunity and went into Shechem and killed all the men. Massacred all the men at Shechem. There's a lot of history there. There's a lot of bloodshed there. There's a lot of promises there. There's curses and there's blessings there because when there's innocent bloodshed, you can argue, was it innocent? Well, there was innocent bloodshed when Dina was raped. There was also innocent bloodshed for the other men that were killed. So there's curses associated on the land with the bloodshed. But that's not the end of the story. That land, curses can be reversed. And we read something very interesting. At the time of Jesus, John chapter 4, they're walking through the land and they come to a place in Samaria, a place called Shikar, which was another name for the same place, Shechem. And there's a well there, and Jesus goes to that well. Why? Because wells speak of life coming back up he goes to that well and that well it's unbelievable he goes to that well I don't have the slide huh come on I don't have the slide, but you take your word for, my word for, uh, from me. There's a well right there. Oops. There's a well right there, and it's Jacob's well. And he meets a Samaritan woman. 
who points to the mountain of Gerizim. And she says, our ancestors told us to worship God on this mountain, but your people worship God in Jerusalem. And he turns to her and he says, the day is coming where them who worship God will worship him in spirit and truth. And it has nothing to do with location. Because it's not about the location. The location was an example for us to understand the principle so that we can transfer the principle from the location to the mobile location, which is your and my heart, which is where he wants to set up the altar, which is where he wants to set up the, uh, the temple, which is where he wants to dwell, not in a mountain in Gerizim, not in a mountain in Jerusalem, but at that well. And that woman heard those words at Shechem, and she runs to her village, and she brings everybody back. Joshua, you missed it when you said God is not a forgiving God. You missed it when you said God is going to curse you. God wants to bless as soon as we align with him. He wants to pour the blessings. He wants to make sure that we have everything that we need. He wants to now use the principles of the Old Testament to show us the foundations of the spiritual principles that we walk in today. Location is important because God used it and he will continue to use location. But he is establishing mobile locations because he is redeeming the whole earth. You and my eye are made of dust of the earth and we're part of the mobile earth that's moving everywhere we go. We take his temple with us. We take his presence with us. We take him wherever we go because it is through Abraham that he promised he will make him a great nation that whoever blesses him will be blessed. And now it's the same. We are the living Abraham wherever we go. Take the presence of God with us and we say, hey, I want to be a blessing in your life. I want you to be blessed. I will live in such a way that you will not curse me, but you will bless me so that the blessing of God can flow in your life. But the temptation is very strong. Israel failed. Repeatedly, Israel failed. And you and I are not immune. You and I can fall into the same traps. They had idols that he warned them about. The idols that they came out of Egypt with and the idols that they borrowed from the neighbors now around them, the Amorites, all of the other neighbors. There are cultural idols that surround the people of God in every generation. Let me repeat that. There are cultural, societal idols that surround the people of God in every generation. Why? Why? Why is the enemy doing that? Because he knows the power of the covenant with Abraham. He knows the power of Abraham living in a way that nations will now be blessed. And he doesn't want that. He wants them to remain under curse. So he will tempt Abraham because this is the only source that people can be blessed. God will intervene supernaturally and do his thing. Yes, and he does. But the, the, the normal, the everyday, the plan A is for Abraham's descendants to be the light in the rest of the world. So he, if he can come and tempt these guys, us, with the temptations of the idols of our day, he will turn the light off and the rest of the world will remain in darkness. But when the church has the light on, there's an opportunity for the rest of the nations.
because through you, I will bless all the families of the earth. So what are some of the societal idols that you and I face? I've just listed 10 of them. There's many more, but these are the big ones. Materialism and consumerism. In North America, that's one of the idols. In African jungle towns, it's not so much. But in our culture, in our society, it's definitely a big one. Oops. Sorry, I thought I had to tap them, but I had them set up. It can come up. Individualism. Where I value myself above my society, above my family. We try to drill the concept of family into our hearts constantly to counter and fight the concept of individualism. Technological idolatry. You been there? You got to have the latest and the greatest and the newest and the fastest and the, the best. Yes, they're tools and you need them to be able to work, to do the things that you need to do. But if you treat them beyond tools that you're obsessed by it, it becomes an idol. An idol is not something that is evil, it's actually, you know, you need a little bit of that. You need a little bit of materialism, but not overboard. You need to be able to exist in the material world. You need to have an idea of who, who you are and have your ego. But I'm not talking about being egoist, egotistic. Pursuit of pleasure. Hedonism. You know, it's all about me and my, my comfort. Celebrity culture, where we begin to follow and imitate those that are out there in the media. Nationalism and political idolatry. This is now becoming huge. And it's all about polarizing. You see it in the U.S. huge with the elections that are coming up and everything else that's going on. Success and achievement. There is such an industry that's developed, a billions of dollar industry that's all about success and how to make it bigger. You can't watch a YouTube video without seeing somebody trying to sell you a seminar about how you can use Amazon to make money. Right? Is it just my, my account that gets those? It's everybody's, right? Okay, I thought maybe I clicked on something. Body image and beauty. It's huge. It's massive. Massive. Workaholism. We have to work. And all of these, by the way, there is a safe area and there's an idolatry area. Okay, so don't go judging people that have the latest by saying, ah, oh, they're, you know, uh, technological idol worshippers. No, don't think of somebody who's looking after a beauty salon as being an idol salon. No, that's not what I'm saying. Workaholism, you have to work. The Bible says, Jesus, God said to Adam, unless you, by the sweat of your brow, you won't eat. But we're trying to do everything to succeed and not have to work. Do you see the con connections? Secularism and skepticism. We have come as a society to the place where we are so skeptical of the spiritual things, but we have created our own set of spiritual dynamics that we live under. It's a mishmash of, of a whole bunch of Eastern and Western religions and Christianity and Judaism and Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism all mixed into one. 
Some of them are, are good principles. They come from a biblical foundation. But we have shifted and taken them to a different place. So be aware. Be aware of these idols in your life. I'm not saying they're idols in your life, but idols around you. Be aware that they don't creep in to become idols in your own heart. Because if the light goes out in Abraham's family, the light goes out everywhere in the world. God will still have a remnant in Iran, in Afghanistan, in China, where the church is underground. God still speaks to people through visions and dreams and they come to know him. But that's not the standard. The standard is through Abraham's family, he will establish his light in all places. So check him. When we read the story of Joshua, now as it's wrapping up and his life is over, he's coming to the place where he's giving his last words. Maybe as a loving father, just like Adam, he's cautioning a bit too much. But you can't do that with God. God is faithful. And Jesus brought it back and corrected it when he met with that woman at the well. And that whole city was impacted by the presence of Jesus. So you and I today were given the same opportunity. And the title of this message is actually a little bit weird. The Lord our God, we will serve, and him we will obey. So will you stand with me and let's pray this together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for how the word is sharp and it penetrates. My prayer is, Lord, as we have discussed these stories from Joshua's life and the people of Israel, that you will impact us today. Father, as we stand here and make these words ours, the Lord our God, we will serve and him we will obey. Say it with me. The Lord our God, we will serve and him we will obey. As we echo these words, Lord, may our journey be different. May we not be impacted by the idols and around uh, our society. May we live in a way, Lord, that will bring honor to you, that we would bring your light forth in our generation. We thank you. We bless you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.